I want to invite you to take your Bibles this afternoon and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. I'll read verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain on the earth, and whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow. And he who looks at the clouds will not reap, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. Well, in verses 1 and 2 that we looked at last time, Solomon presses two divine commands. Uh, Verse 1, cast your bread. It's an imperative. It's a command. Cast your bread. And then in verse 2, still a command, he says divide or give your portion. Uh, The details of the verses are rather difficult to comprehend and uh, we, we tried to be faithful to the text and seeking to understand. But understand this, and this is always true. Well, even in these passages that are the so-called difficult passages, uh, they are not beyond our comprehension. And they are given for us. God has given them to us for our instruction. So although they may be difficult, it just means we have to study harder, we have to dig deeper, we have to be more diligent and vigilant in seeking to uncover the truth. So there are, uh, we, we refer to the Word of God as perspicuous. In other words, it's understandable, it's clear, particularly regarding the gospel, things uh, uh, essential unto salvation. But When we say the Bible is perspicuous, we do not mean that it is equally the same in every part. Some parts are more difficult than others. And when we come to those parts, uh, it's good to practice what we call the analogy of faith, allowing scripture to interpret scripture, because many, many times, one portion of of scripture will give clarity to another. So as we looked at verses one and two last time, Uh, trying to determine what did he mean uh, by casting our bread and giving our portion. Uh, What did he mean by giving a portion to seven and even to eight? And the overall emphasis, which is where we directed attention last time, the overall emphasis here is on generosity, upon giving. And I, I applied it to the importance of benevolence and upon diligence in kingdom endeavors. But now we move on, 
And although we move on and we continue with verses 3 through 6, we're really finding a continuation of the context of verses 1 and 2, uh, as well as a broader context. So it's not like suddenly there's a complete different idea or concept going forth. It's still consistent with the main context and still a continuation of verses 1 and 2. But once again, which has been very consistent with Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, now we have to dig deep and study hard in order to determine the precise meaning. But the, the meaning of verses 3 through 6 seem to be much easier, at least they were for me, than verses 1 and 2. Solomon is speaking on the topic of sowing and reaping. Now, we understand what that means, even though we no longer live in an agrarian culture. So we're, we're a little more removed from farming days, from days of sowing and days of reaping. But Solomon in these verses pictures a farmer standing in his field watching the weather and the uncertainties of life. And he never actually sows because of the uncertainties, because of the difficulties, because of the risk. And so it portrays the actions of a fool. Now we understand that. Uh, we know what a fool is and we pray, oh God, help me not to be foolish because we are foolish. Uh, our hearts are often wicked and we are often quite gullible and we often convince ourselves that something is right when it actually is not. We can convince ourselves that this is a good course of action when in reality it is not. And so life upon this earth demands great wisdom of which we should pray continually. So we're really dealing with the issue of sloth and we're dealing with the issue of risk taking. We also understand that because living upon the earth is risky business. We know that. Uh, we live in a dangerous world. We live in a fallen world, and we are surrounded by dangers. So every decision we make, we have to evaluate, and we have to determine, and we have to, to make uh, decisions based upon risk factors, because we live in a world of risk. We don't like risk. We really don't. And because we don't like risk, many times people become frozen in their decision-making. We don't like risk, which is why, by the way, we are consumed with buying insurance. What does insurance do? Well, it does nothing but lower your risk. That's all it does. Uh, you, get, you get insurance on your car, lowering your risk. That way, in case you have an accident, then you can replace your vehicle. Or, if it's your fault, uh, you'll have necessary resources to help the one that you damage. Good thing. We have insurance on our homes. We have hospitalization. You're insuring your body because you're measuring the risk. And if I don't have the insurance, of course, it's now the law, you have to. But if I don't have insurance and I do have a medical crisis, what then? It's the matter of risk and risk tolerance, and it's like that in everything. People make investments, and it's all about risk tolerance. What degree of risk am I willing to take 
with my money. It's risk tolerance, and that's the way we live. Everything is a measure of risk tolerance. So that's what Solomon is discussing here. Risk tolerance. And the, the one who stands in the middle of his field looks at the clouds, looks at the wind, and determines it's too dangerous. He never sows. And I can tell you this, the one who never sows never reaps. Got to take risks. And it's calculated risk. So I titled this afternoon's sermon, Reasonable Risks. We take risks as well we should, but they need to be reasonable risks measured upon the validity of the Word of God. We're not fools, and we're not left without a, a testimony from God's Word. So we evaluate, and we measure we pray, we seek wisdom from the Word of God, and then we act either one way or the other. So point one, we need to take reasonable risks. We need to be reasonable risk takers. Now, verse 3 describes stormy conditions. Even when the fool walks, I'm sorry, um, verse 3, uh, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, uh, towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. So the, the, the clouds are full, and since the clouds are full, looking at the text again, if the clouds are full, what's that mean? Well, when the clouds are full, you are most likely about to have a downpour. The clouds are full. They can only hold so much moisture, and by and by, it opens up. Just a couple of weeks ago, of course, we had rain here, but the rain we had here was the leftover of what they had in California, and they called it an atmospheric river, of all things. So much water in the atmosphere, it's like a river flowing, and the atmosphere can only hold so much water. And so they had downpours and deluges and mudslides and street flooding and on and on. Well, the clouds are full. So that's what's being taught here. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain. And we're not talking about just your normal rain. We're talking about full clouds and the threat of flooding. Perhaps it'll flood, perhaps it won't. Perhaps it'll be even worse tomorrow, who can know? And so it may flood today, but maybe it'll flood tomorrow, but it might not, but should I just not sow right now because it's risky and I don't want to take the risk. So the farmer stays inside and waits. Likewise, there's the threat of windy conditions. We know windy conditions here. We have tornadoes and we have the dreaded hurricane. You know, this time of the year as I look forward into the hurricane season and they're making forecasts and I always find this sense of foreboding. You know, are we going to have an active hurricane season? There's nothing you can do about it. They just simply come. 
Oh, they can try to forecast it. They can say, oh, it's going to be a heavy season. We're expecting X number of named storms, but they're merely guessing. But what we have here is a, a farmer that looks outside, and there's the threat of windy conditions. So not only are the clouds full, but there's the threat of windy conditions. So windy that the trees might fall. So that's pretty windy. So verse 3 again, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls, what's going to cause the tree to fall? Windy conditions. So there's no way to predict what will happen, whether the tree will fall to the north or whether the tree will fall to the south. Might be best to stay inside. Let's not sow today. Might be flooding conditions, might be windy conditions. Let's just stay inside. Let's not sow today. You get the idea. Will he sow tomorrow? What about the next day? Will he sow at all? And to further illustrate the farmer's lack of diligence, let's say the tree does fall. Do you pull out your saw and cut it up? Or do you leave it laying where it falls? Which a farmer doesn't want to do. If there's a tree falling across the field, you can't plow it. So if a tree falls, you've got to get it up. Because if you don't get it up, it's going to interfere with your sowing. So the idea is that if there are clouds threatening to flood, don't sow. And if, there are, if there's wind and the trees are falling, don't sow. And if the tree does fall, don't pick it up. It's the picture of sloth. And the Bible does have something to say about sloth. It doesn't allow it. We are to be vigilant. We're to be those that understand the concept of vocation. Vocation is merely from the Latin word woco, uh, which means vocation. That's where we get our word vocation from. It, it, the word woco means call, uh, to call. So it's speaking of our vocation or our calling. And Christians, with a proper biblical worldview, we understand the concept of calling. Every, every Christian has a calling. You may have multiple callings, but we use our, and your calling may change from time to time, but you, we use our calling to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. You hear that? The glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And I've gone through the scenarios on that, and I'm not going to take the time this afternoon to to rehash, uh, but we understand a healthy understanding of, of uh, vocation, and we understand that work itself is a gift from God. It is a creation ordinance. It's that which we are to be involved in the entirety of our life. The, the Bible doesn't really teach retirement where you you work for a certain amount of time, and then you go fishing the, re- the rest of your life. It's time to go fishing. Call up your buds and go to the pond. It's time to quit your labor and retire and live the good life. Uh, it reminds me of the farmer in the parable who uh, earns a lot, has his barns full, 
He says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns so I can fill them up and then I can eat, drink, and be merry, retire. And Jesus says, thou fool. You don't, I mean, you, you don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow and then when you die, someone else will take all that that you labored for and who knows if they will spend it wisely. And Solomon deals with that as well. So we're not allowed to be slothful. You know, Solomon writing still, Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? That's a, that's a nasty word, isn't it? How would you like to be called sluggard? Uh, you, you, you abbreviate it, and the, it's like the prefix, slug. There's something not very wholesome about a slug. So you sluggard. And what sluggards do, you ever see a slug slowly making its way across your garden? Uh, they say pour salt on it, no more slug. Slugs don't have a great deal of value, at least from my perspective. God, God has purpose in all of his creation, but I don't know about slugs and mosquitoes and wasps. I think I could do away with any of them. But the sluggard, how long will you lie down, O oh, sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Not a very appealing description. Solomon again in Proverbs 24, verse 30. He says, I passed by the field of a sluggard. And by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. The farmers know that you, you can't just plow and then sow. The field has to be tended. You have to keep the weeds under control. You've got to labor in the field until finally you bring in the harvest. But this sluggard, Solomon says, it was completely overgrown with weeds. Completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, more weeds, and its stone wall was broken down. He didn't even repair the fence. And when I saw, I reflected upon it, and I looked and received instruction. Here's what he says. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and then your poverty will come as a robber. In other words, in the most unexpected time and your want like an armed man. Or one more, and we'll move on. The sluggard says, this is Proverbs 22, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. You get the idea. He's inside, he's safe, and it's probably not even like he's seen the lion. It's just that there might be a lion. So I'm not gonna go outside. I'm not gonna go to work. I'm just going a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and your poverty will come upon you like a robber. Well, that's the sluggard. We'll not take risks. We'll not risk the dangers that may be out there. I'll just stay inside where it's safe. It also points the picture of a person frozen in fear because life is full of the unexpected and there's always the unknown. 
unknown dangers, unknown risks. Verse 2, for you do not know what misfortune may have occurred. Verse 5, just as you do not know the path of the wind. Verse 5 again, so you do not know the activity of God. The point is uncertainty, things you cannot predict, things you do not know. So we're not supposed to be foolhardy or careless. No one promotes that. We're not, there are those that take wild leaps, never consider, just always leaping forth, often to their own peril. We're not talking about carelessness. But we will never succeed in life without taking risks. How do you know if you will receive a passing grade in the class? You'll never know unless you actually enroll in the class. Oh, I hear it's a hard class. I hear that many people do not pass. I think I'll just forego the class. You do not know whether or not you will be hired or not, but you'll never know if you never apply for the job. And we could go on with this forever. All of the decisions, all of the perceived dangers, and the problem of never stepping out to take action at all. People refuse to get married. They refuse to have children. That's what many are saying today. I'm not going to get married. I'm surely not going to have children. Who would bring children into such a world as this? You hear that? My goodness, do you think, thou fool, that today and our world is somehow different than in previous generations when the sinfulness of men have always prevailed upon the earth and there's always been war upon the earth and there's always been criminal activity upon the earth and the Roman Empire surely devoured Christians in the arena. We've always lived in a wicked, fallen, dangerous world. But people still get married. They still buy and sell property. They still have children, even though we live in a fallen world. I mean, we go, really? As, as if this isn't the situation that every generation has been in? We get married and we have children. And, you know, it's often generational. You know, look at it. Look at adults who never take risks. And if you trace it back to their childhood, it's generational. You know, I can, I can assure you their parents were the ones that say, don't swing too high, don't ride too fast, it's dangerous, you know, don't take risks. The children are taught to avoid any form of risk-taking, and it carries over into adulthood. It's been said, and it is true. Helicopter parenting is seldom successful parenting and will seldom lead to well-balanced, healthy adults. You know what helicopter parenting is, right? 
helicopter hovering over the children, never allowing the children to step out. They're, you know, it's too dangerous. You can't play in the backyard. It's too dangerous. Don't climb that tree. It's too dangerous. Blink, 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 blink. It doesn't mean that we're foolhardy, but it also doesn't hurt a child to have an occasional skint knee. Last time I went to the roller skating rink, my goodness, well, I guess that's my age speaking. I've never seen so many knee pads and elbow pads, helmets. Really? We're roller skating, you know? It's just roller skating. You might fall, but you probably will not die. Okay, that's enough of that. I, I know I'm sounding sarcastic, but helicopter parenting is seldom successful parenting. But there are consequences to our actions. It's easy to blame others for our, our own uh, circumstances rather than accept responsibility that perhaps it may be of our own doing. Excuses are always easier than taking bold action. You, know, you, can, you can look at the example of the spies sent into Canaan. Now, there are 12 spies, and they go to spy out the land. There are 10 spies that bring back a negative report. It's too dangerous. And there are two spies that bring back a positive report. Did somehow they go to different parts of the land and they saw different things? No, they saw exactly the same thing. So Numbers 13, if you want to turn in your Bibles, this is Numbers 13, 31. Here's the 10 spies. We're not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. How do they know they're too strong? Have they gone to battle with them? Have they engaged them? Have they even been in actual contact with them? No, they're just spying from afar. But they are too strong for us. It's too risky, too dangerous. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying, with a land through which we have gone in spying it out, well, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. Really? How do you know? It devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw are men of great size. Those are biguns, using southern jargon. They're biguns. They're big guys. Uh, they, uh, they're men of great size, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who are a part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. I've always found that interesting. We found, we found ourselves as grasshoppers in our own sight, in our own mind. So we were in their sight. But Joshua and Caleb... They were men of a different sort. They're men like we ought to be. It's like Joshua. Joshua finally becomes the leader, the general of Israel as they marched into Canaan. And at the end of his life, it's Joshua that says, Choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Caleb, on the other hand, he goes before Joshua and he says, Look, you're, div you're dividing the land, everyone's receiving their inheritance, but give me the hard territory. 
He said, I'm 85 years old, and I'm as ready to go to war now as when I was 40. Give me the hard land. Men of a different sort. Here's what they said. The land, this is verses 7 through 9. The land of chapter 14. The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceeding good land. It's the same land that the, that the ten saw. Same land. The, and if the Lord is pleased with us, then he'll bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us, and do not fear them of a different sort. What, was it risky? Well, yeah, there were giants in the land. They surely were. There were big walled cities. I mean, first city they came to, Jericho. It was large and walled, but they conquered it because God was with them. Was it an unnecessary risk? No, because they were obeying the word of God. So fear keeps people from following Christ. Fear actually keeps people from receiving Christ to begin with. I mean, after all, what will others think? Fear keeps people from sharing the gospel. What will others think? What if I say the wrong thing? What if they reject me? I think it might be best to stay in the house where it's safe. And so they never, ever share the gospel, not one time. You know, I'm not going to leave a tract on the table at the restaurant because, after all, someone might see me. I'm not going to pray at the restaurant because someone might hear me. And they're not willing to take the risk, as if that's any risk to be afraid of. But that's the way we live. People procrastinate. Perhaps tomorrow will be a more opportune time. Perhaps the weather will be better. And in the end, they're nothing more than what we call fair-weather Christians. Christians that never take a risk, never take a chance, always fearful, always afraid to move forward. And the book of Revelation actually says something about them. Who are those that will occupy the lake of fire? Well, we know some of them, sorcerers, the wicked, whoremongers, but we're kind of surprised at one. Who will occupy the lake of fire? Revelation 21 but for the cowardly, the timid, and unbelieving, abominable murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers and idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Why in the world would it say the cowardly? Depending on your translation, the King James Version translates it, but the fearful and unbelieving. Some translations translate it the timid. The New American Standard says the cowardly. Why is it the cowardly will occupy the lake of fire? Well, one, those that will not receive the gospel because of the risks. 
because of the dangers. And there have been many cultures and many societies that re re receiving Christ is very dangerous, very risky business. But it's the risk that must be taken. And living the Christian life, especially in a very secular, godless world in which we are living in, the, the way of our land right now, it's even worse in Europe. In, I mean, we can actually stand in front of an abortion clinic here and pray. They can't even pray there. They will be arrested even for praying in front of the clinic within 500 feet of the clinic, even if they're bowing their head and praying silently. It's like mind police. Uh, we will not allow you to... Very dangerous, risky business. You can be thrown into prison. But do you risk it? That's the point. And for the fearful, the timid, the cowardly, well, they're merely demonstrating that they don't know Christ. They have not received the Savior. So Solomon is saying that the person who does not give himself to sowing cannot expect the blessings of the harvest. That's the, the ultimate teaching. Cannot expect, verse 4, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Which then brings me to the next point. Simply this. Well, then we need to trust the good providence of God. You know, it, it takes faith to be a farmer. It really does. It takes faith to be involved in whatever endeavor we seek in life. But think of the farmer. Who knows if it will rain? Who knows if it will flood? Who knows if there will be no rain? And we've been in the midst of drought here in the United States for several years now. Uh, uh, Karen brought back pictures from Hoover Dam. Man, the, you, you can see the mark on the side of the canyon where the water normally is. It's really low. Drought condition. Farmers are really suffering. Even in our state, farmers are suffering. So who knows if it will rain? Sowing is an act of faith because we don't know if it will rain or not. And who knows if an early frost will destroy the entire crop. And who knows about wildfires and tornadoes and hurricanes. What about war and all of the dangers that can ruin the harvest? One of the most wealthy men of antiquity, and we're talking about way back, is Job. Job was wealthy. He had fields. He had servants. He had livestock. He was a, and of course, wealth then was measured in your land and your, your, your livestock. And he was wealthy. But one day... Job 1.14, and we know it very well. This is very familiar to us. Job 1, a messenger came to Job. All this happened in one day. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing. They were doing farming work. They were plowing. The servants were working. The donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Well, while he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Must have been a huge thunderstorm and lightning consumed the field. Uh, It could have been any number of natural events, fire from heaven, or it could have been supernatural. But the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them, slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It's dangerous business that we live in. It's all around us. So how can we predict these unexpected events? How can we predict them? And the answer answer is simple and clear. We can't. How can you predict a flood? You can't necessarily predict it. You know, last week, the forecaster said there was a 70% chance of rain on Friday and then again on Saturday, possible thunderstorms. It never came. I was waiting, you know, I was waiting. It never came. We, we can make forecast, but God rules. He knows, and he alone knows. So how can you predict unexpected events? We just simply can't. Verse 5, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. The cloud and the fallen tree in verse 4 describe God's act of divine providence. We can't control the clouds. We cannot control the wind. We cannot control the fallen trees. We cannot know what God is doing precisely, and we cannot stop it. So what are we to do about it? We're to live. We are to live. We are to enjoy life. We are to live our life even in the midst of uncertainties in life, knowing that in the mind of God, there are no uncertainties. He ordains and does all things after the counsel of his own will. So what do we do? We sow. The farmer sows his seed. What if the clouds flood? The farmer sows his seed. What if there's a drought? The farmer sows his seed. Verse 6, sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, whether both of them alike will be good. You do not know. So you sow. That's what the faithful farmer does. We're to trust God and devote ourselves to serving him. We must enter the future with due diligence. You don't have to know the future to embrace it and enjoy it and trust the living God in it. We are to give all due diligence in our plans. We're to prepare for our vocation. And we plan to get married and we plan to have children. And we face the risks and dangers 
trusting God. I always tell young people, have a plan and a backup. It's almost like a broken record at this point. Have a plan and a backup. If the plan fails, you've got the backup. Have a plan, plan A, plan B. So we need to make bold plans. But fear of failure cripples and stunts, and you will never do anything. And it's true with all of life. Oh, here's the question then. You're probably already pondering it. So what are reasonable risks? We are to be reasonable risk takers. What are reasonable risks? Well, therein lies the rub. Reasonable risks is a recognition that in our fallen world, there are dangers everywhere. Everywhere. Everything we do is risky. I mean, when I, you know, when the service is over and we all go to our vehicles, just pulling out on the main road is a risk. Driving down the road, who knows? Are you going to be rear-ended? Someone pulls out in front of you? Who knows? Your tire comes off and you crash into a tree? Boy, I'm, aren't I being encouragement this afternoon? The, the point is, risks. We live in a risky world. But in the midst of danger, God commands us to take dominion over the world. In the midst of danger, God commands us to take dominion. We must labor hard. We must be willing to battle the obstacles and labor and work, praying for God's wisdom and that he would grant us sound judgment and to recognize there are some things that perhaps would not be the best decision. We've, we make sound de decisions and exercise good decisions, good judgment. And so we evaluate situations. For example, probably would not have been a good idea to bring along your wife and children during the Alaskan gold rush. And we know the history. During the Alaskan uh, gold rush, uh, they, I mean, hordes of individuals stampeded the Yukon and, and the Klondike, uh, gold rush of the 1890s. Thousands rushed into the area with the prospect of finding gold. They were referred to as the stampeders. Thousands and thousands and thousands. The government tried to curtail the stampede, the people coming, and thousands of people died. They died of starvation. They died of exposure. They died from violence. It was risky business. Would not have been wise to take your children and your wife on such an excursion. So we make wise decisions, and we evaluate things carefully, and we recognize men, you have a responsibility for your, for your wives, for your children, and you don't bring them through unnecessary dangers, risks that you may take that you do not allow your wife and your children to take. I know that sounds sexist in our generation, but that's the way it is. Men are the providers and the protectors, and the women are the nurturers. Boy, does that sound sexist. It's not. It's, it's God's program. It's his design. 
And so men, there are some times that we will take risks that we don't necessarily bring our wives through. You know, there's a, there's a group that uh, they, uh, they, they meet at a church uh, on the Texas, actually New Mexico, uh, Mexico border. And they go every year and uh, young people go. Uh, some teach vacation Bible school in this little church and some cross over into Juarez. Juarez isn't the safest place. It's not the most dangerous, but they don't allow the very young children to go. Only the teenagers with parents with because they're not taking unnecessary, foolhardy risk. Everyone else can stay behind and teach vacation Bible school and help out in the mother church and not do the risky part of crossing over into Mexico. Making sound judgment, making good, solid evaluations of the decisions we make. But at the same time, we understand that no venture upon the face of this earth is free from risk, ever. Young couple get married, and who knows that a year later, one or the other will not be alive. You don't know. Well, I'm not going to get married because I'm afraid that maybe I may lose my mate or I may die. We're not going to have children because, after all, I may die and leave my children fatherless. And I'm not going to... You see where all this goes? No, we take wise risks, and we trust God in it. We need to make bold plans and trust our God. The, the American missionary, William Carey, was stirred by the lack of engagement by most Christians in the spread of the gospel. In, and William Carey is often referred to as the father of American missions. 1792, he writes, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners, who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. He went to India. Adoniram Judson went to Burma. They took risks for the sake of bringing the gospel to the lost. It was Carey who famously said, you'll recognize the quote, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. It's a great quote. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. God calls us to trust him today. Today. Tomorrow will always be a mystery. We trust him today. Let me give you one more parable. Our Lord's teaching was so instructive. Really gives us that it brings us to the heart of discipleship, the nature of the kingdom, what it means to follow him. So here's what he teaches in Luke 9. He says in verses 57 through 62. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus answers him, You better know what you're doing. He doesn't put it exactly that way. I'll tell you exactly what he says in a moment. But that's what he's saying. You need to understand what you're doing. It's not going to be an easy life. 
You know, people, people make outward professions of faith in Christ today considering, thinking that Christianity is an easy path. It is not. It has never been. So, I will follow you wherever you go, this man says. And Jesus says to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Not an easy life. Not an easy course. Understand carefully what you are about to do. And then he says to another, follow me. Very simple. Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. Now, understand what's going on here. It's not that the man's father has died and they're about to have the funeral. So give me two or three days to bury my father and then I'll come and join your group. It's not that at all. Most likely his father is alive and well. The man's probably a young man. What he's saying is, let me hold off until my father gets old and dies 30 years from now, and then I'll follow you. I've had people do that all the time. God is calling me then. He doesn't work that way. It's today. Today, not then, today. But he says, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And then another one says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Again, procrastinating. Later on, not now. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom. That, that word, follow me, is a present imperative. Now the grammar means a lot. A present imperative imperative. Literally, follow me and keep following me. It's durative in action. Follow me and keep following me. Go on following me. Following Christ means obeying his commands without reservation, without question. Many set conditions on following Christ. I will follow you, but... I'm not willing to be inconvenienced, but you know, I, I'm going to set my parameters in what I think is your due. You need to, talking to Jesus, you need to adopt your program to meet my program. Matthew Henry says, quote, and he's quoting from this Luke passage, many are hindered from and in the way of serious godliness by an over-concern for their families and their relations, these lawful things undo us all, and our duty to God is neglected and postponed. We live by faith today. You hear that? We live by faith today. I've had, I've been doing this a long time, and I've heard a lot of different people, and I've heard every excuse you can imagine. I've had far too many boasts that I will serve God later. It's not exactly put in that, those terms. But, you know, after I graduate, 
I'm going to have all this time. You know, after my kids are grown, I will have all this time. You know, when I get this promotion, I will have all this time. You know, when I retire, we have plans to do this or that. One, they never do it. And two, they're presuming they'll even be around. I've seen those making bold claims about their retirement when they'll have all this time to serve God, and they're not even alive to do it. Retirement's a dangerous thing. I've seen pastors retire and not live a year. It's not a wise course of action. So the farmer in this passage is just watching and waiting and not farming. He's not sowing his field. He's frozen in procrastination. He keeps waiting for better conditions with fewer risks, but he never sows. And I can tell you, the one who never sows never reaps. Yeah, there are risks and there are dangers. But two farmers hear of drought conditions. One of them sows. It's drought conditions. There's not a cloud in the sky. He sows. The other one says, these are drought conditions. There's not a cloud in the sky. I'm not going to sow. I can tell you this. Of the two farmers, it might be that neither bring in the harvest, but I can tell you of a certainty, the one who did not sow will not bring in a harvest. So we plan for rain. That's faith in God. We plan for rain. It's not foolhardy. It's plan for rain. I will do all due diligence. I will give my very best and then trust you, O God, to bring the harvest. We plan for rain. No guarantees. We're simply called to wisely move forward and live our life. And we live it joyfully because we're living it in the presence of God. So may God grant us to be kingdom-minded and Christ-honoring. And may we march forth fearlessly, not foolhardy, but fearlessly as we live our life trusting God for the results. And that's the life he would have us to lead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the continued instruction that we have received from Ecclesiastes. It's a fool who sees the full clouds and does not sow. To sees the, he see, sees the wind and does not sow. To see the tree fall across the field and does not pick it up. It's the sloth, it's the fearful, it's the one who will never move forward out of fear. Father, help us to be those that are not foolhardy, uh, not full of, uh, of foolishness, but always marching forth, trusting in our God, knowing that you do all things well. You're a God who loves your people and continues to work all things through us. So, Father, thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We're for our final hymn this afternoon.